God. Where did that come from? Welcome back to the direction. Hi, friends. I haven't sang welcome back in a while. That's true. And now that you're making our intros be all equitable and shit, I have to find a way to do it. I mean, I'm not forcing anything on you. forcing equity on me. I mean, it's about time somebody forced equity on you. (laughs) But then you have to like one-up me by singing your intros. My allergy-filled, tone-deaf self. It's beautiful. Anyway, welcome back to Midwretched. It's allergy season in the Midwest. (laughs) Yes, it is. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hope that your noses and sinuses are dealing with what's going on out here, which is uh, pollen murder, basically, as far Mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. We're very congested over here. It's also about to be time for these cicadas to emerge, the Brood X. Oh, yeah. My partner is very excited about Brood X. Oh, my God. I don't quite understand it. I have a lifelong terrible, and when I say terrible, I mean like phobic level fear of cicadas and June bugs and like insects like that. Mm-hmm. And I attribute it to two memories, one being another brood of cicadas that popped up when I was like a little kid, like seven or eight. And I just remember there are like bodies everywhere, like their shell, and like, you know. I think I remember that same season. It was like the 17-year ones. Yeah. I think so. No, the one right now is the 17-year ones, but maybe it was, I don't know, like the, I'm not old enough to have been through two 17-year ones, so it had to be another. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. What is 17 plus 17? 34. I'm 32. So then there was one when you were 15. Yeah, but this one was when I was way okay. younger, though. <laughs> but still, like you have been kid. able to live through two 17-year broods. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, I was like a kid. Like, okay. I was maybe like seven or eight, okay. you know? So I'm just going to have to Google which brood that was. Okay. And then another memory was a childhood friend, like, mercilessly murdering june bugs in front of me and just like I, it just messed me up so i'm like mm-hmm. dreading just dreading this so hard i don't like when people call them june bugs because i'm like no don't try to make them cute they're fucking dive bombers and i hate <laughs> them oh gosh the sound they make i just we need to stop talking about this before i have like a heart attack before i tell the story <laughs> sometimes i think about the podcast that i look up to listening to us And I think about, Mm. like, red-handed listening to us and being like, what the fuck are they talking about? (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about real life, you guys. It's real life. They're murder bugs. They are. We're talking about real life here. They're actually completely harmless. They're just gigantic and scary. Yeah, it doesn't matter that they're harmless. Like, they're not harmless to my psyche. Mm -hmm. So there's harm being done. All right, let's change the subject because I don't like them. Okay. I would love that. So June brings wonderful things like Pride Month. <gasps> Happy Pride, Happy everybody. Pride. Uh, I mean, we're recording this on June 1, so it's going to feel like we're wishing you a Happy Pride a little bit too late by the time this episode actually comes out. But just know that it is June 1st when we are saying these things. Mm-hmm. So uh, yay, Happy Pride. Yay, Happy Pride. We love Pride here at Midwretched. We do. We really do. And today's story is going to kind of center around a very tragic victim who was also a really proud member 
of the LGBTQIA plus community. And we're just going to talk about some of the, you know, as relates to the case, some of the stuff around that as well. But also just to like really give a lot of honor and love to this victim because this is not oft talked about case. And I want to give it some light because he was a really wonderful person and I want to honor him. We love that. Yeah, totally, right? So do you have any updates before I start? No, I've been keeping my eye out for a couple of updates, but nothing has emerged so far. Yeah, no, we're good. Okay, good. So I am going to start us off actually with a letter to the editor to the Courier, which is a newspaper in Waterloo, Iowa, which is where today's case takes us. Okay. So I want to read this uh, letter to the editor first before I kind of dive into the case, just to give us some food for thought. Now, this comes to us in the Sunday, April 17th, 2005 edition of The Courier. So, you know, we're we're in 05, like it's a, it's a bit ago, but I think some of this is still going to ring true, even though some of it's dated, right? So this letter is titled, We're All Part of the Problem, from a wonderful Iowan named Joe Preep. So, Joe writes this. As one who is long familiar with the protests and accompanying protest tactics of the Westboro Baptist Church, I, for one, can say I'm not surprised they showed up in Waterloo to protest the benefit for Jason Gage. However, what does surprise me is how us ordinary citizens are surprised such people would show up at a memorial services for gay and lesbian people and proceed to insult and defame such individuals' lives. Why am I surprised that we are surprised? because it is us who create the social and political atmosphere and climate for this group to flourish. Most people will look at the Westboro group and think, how abhorrent, what nasty people, yet fail to realize that the line that separates them from most of us is very thin. The next time you hear or read about the Westboro Baptist Church, which he puts in scare quotes, and find them repulsive, just remind yourself that we are the ones who have made these people what they are and encourage their acts with our own hatred. It is we who have no hate crime laws protecting people who are gay or lesbian. It is we who still allow for legal discrimination of gay and lesbian people. Yes, you can be fired from your job simply for being gay or lesbian. It is we who wanted the don't ask, don't tell policy in the military. It is we who say Boy Scouts cannot be gay. It is we in 49 states who disallow marital rights to gay or lesbian people. It is we in 11 states who find it necessary to exclude certain people from marrying. It is we who disallow adoption rights for gay and lesbian couples. It is we who don't correct our children when they say, man, that's so gay. Hope I didn't hit a nerve, but I refuse to accept the misnomer that the Westboro Baptist Church and the rest of us are light years apart. We are all two peas in a pod. Wow. Yeah. So Joe just laid it all out there. That was written in 2005? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm putting myself in like 2005 mind, and all of that sounds so accurate to the world that I lived in yeah same right just because I know that a lot of it has changed for example Mm -hmm. like marriage rights and all of that yeah but you know that undercurrent is still there so yeah and I think the way that he talks about the kind of like us and them attitude Mm -hmm. like we're not like them we're not um and the Westboro Mm -hmm. Baptist Church has like since kind of fallen apart to a mere shell of its former self which is good but we can't act like similar Groups, groups are not around yeah, yeah exactly doing the same types of things under a different name you know so mm-hmm. and whether we like it or not like 
it is people that we know or see at the grocery store or whatever, you know? So just to act like it's like this thing that's like wholly separate from the rest of us is just, it's not reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I start with that letter to kind of just set us in a headspace to kind of think about this crime in the context of, of these issues, but also, you know, just to be thinking about those things in general. And obviously it's dated, like things have changed, but some things haven't changed as much as, you know, they ought to have. And the mechanics around this case, as you'll see, are a little nebulous in the face of like these types of issues. So um, we'll just kind of have a lot of conversation about what fits, what doesn't fit, you know, what issues are at play, what issues are not at play, that type of stuff. So, mm-hmm. so you know, in reading that, you heard the name of um, the victim in today's case, Jason Gage. Um, so I'm going to talk a lot about Jason Gage. In a minute here, I'm just going to kind of establish where we start on this case, okay? So okay. we are in Waterloo, Iowa, mm-hmm. which is a small city in East Central Iowa, population about 68,000. And I was just really curious to look at like, okay, that's a small city in the Midwest. What would it, what's it like now as far as LGBTQIA friendliness? Mm-hmm. And just to kind of like think about that and try to figure out what it may have been like in 2005, because my knee jerk thought is like, okay, small city in the Midwest maybe not the friendliest place in the world, you know. <laughs> but I was happy to find out that there are some aspects to Waterloo that existed then and some that exist now, I think, in um, large part because of the foundations perhaps set, you know, 15 years ago or so, that do make it, from what I can tell, a friendly-esque place. Hey, Especially like considering its size and location. Yeah, right? So it's 68,000, which... You know, puts it about half the size of South Bend, Indiana, where I live. Well, where I used to live. Now I live in a small town out in the boonies. <laughs> <laughs> of 400 people. I don't know. I made that number up. I think 1,500. I don't know. Okay. Something like that. Real small, though. Um, but, you know, for a town half the size of, like, South Bend, for example, where I was most recently living, it, it seems more friendly than South Bend. For a town half the size. So that's surprising because South Bend is, when I think of like progressive cities in the Midwest, I do think about South Bend. Yeah, it's not bad. It's, it's yeah. not bad. So there's one long standing gay bar in Waterloo called Kings and Queens. Mm-hmm. But what's cool about Kings and Queens, like there's only the one, at least as far as I could tell, but it's on the main drag which I think is actually really significant for a town this size. It is right in downtown Waterloo. It's not like tucked away as like some kind of neighborhood bar in like a random neighborhood. It would be like part of your walk down downtown Waterloo, you know? All right. Which, for example, is not the case in South Bend. So there's also um, the hospital system nearby has a particular branch for LGBTQIA plus healthcare which I think mm-hmm. is really cool. And there's a pretty thriving regional pride festival. And I know the festival existed back then. I'm guessing the hospital stuff didn't. But again, like I think about some of the foundational years for what that might look like today. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's certainly not to, to say that there's that precludes it from having issues. You know, this case certainly points to some issues existing. So well, I mean, um, it never 
You can take the most progressive city in the country and you're still right. going to see issues and hate crimes and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. So Jason Gage was a proud out gay man living and working in Waterloo, Iowa. Yay. Yeah. He was born in 1976 in this tiny, tiny town called Old Wine, Iowa. Sounds like a cute town. Yeah, right. No, he moved around quite a bit, kind of in his young adult years. He lived in Chicago for a while. He lived in Milwaukee for a while. And then eventually kind of came back to Iowa and settled down in Waterloo. Or kind of like semi-settled down, like he was still kind of planning to leave after a while. But, you know, was going to be there for a little bit. So... He came back to Waterloo and moved into a building called the Russell Lampson Building and then actually took a job waiting tables at the Italian restaurant on the building's main floor. So he kind of like lived where he worked. You know, it was all downtown. Mm-hmm. Downtown seems like pretty bustling for a city that size. Like <laughs> I was doing this research and I was like, I kind of want to hang out in Waterloo. Like it never would have occurred to me before, Should but I kind of want to hang out Waterloo, there. Waterloo, Iowa? Yeah. Like, is that our next vacation? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I was just kind of surprised. But Jason was a really busy and ambitious person. Uh, He was working, like, pretty grueling hours, you know, as a server in, like, a busy downtown restaurant while also being enrolled as a student at the College of Hair Design in Waterloo because he was an aspiring hairstylist. He loved giving his friends haircuts. I read one thing where one of his friends talked about how he would give them haircuts, but if he didn't like their idea or he didn't think it was going to work, he would like do what he wanted and just hope, you know, ask for <laughs> forgiveness later. <laughs> Honestly, I need a friend like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of at this point, like I let my hairstylist just kind of like, what do you think? You tell me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, from the sounds of it, he was just like, no, that's not going to work. Here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and you just kind of. Or just to, not like, tell them and be it. like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. sure, we're going to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And from what it sounds like, he was really talented and had some dreams of moving back to a bigger city to do hair, you know, sometime in the future. So by all accounts, he was just like a really active, like lively person, big personality. He liked going out and, you know, just fun, flirtatious, delightful, generous person, you know, a big heart and a big personality. I love him. Yeah, I know. He just sounds really, (laughs) really, really lovely. So... In 2005, he was 29, and I'm going to take us to March 14th, 2005, okay? Okay. On March 14th, 2005, Jason did not report to work, and that was not normal for him. He was not like the no-call, no-show type. So the 14th was a Monday, and his concerned friends called the police because, again, like he wasn't one to skip work, and no one had seen him since the weekend. And from what I could tell... He was kind of the type to be like, if he had free time, he was going to be doing something social. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to be like, just going to moping around his apartment, you know. So the fact that <laughs> he's not us. Um, <laughs> I'm not moping. I'm enjoying it. Yes, I'm thriving. Okay. But that wasn't him. He was he was one to be kind of like out and about. So because of the persistence of his friends, police did agree to do a wellness check. In most states, I was thinking about this because I was still obsessing about Racine County Jane Doe, Mm -hmm. that case. But it's also just kind of really important in general to note that in most states, it has to be a family member to report somebody missing. So while the friends couldn't report him formally missing, they did agree to do a wellness check. Anybody can request a wellness check. Yes. And that's a very, very important thing to know. Yes. So if you are ever concerned, even Mm -hmm. if it's just like 
haven't seen him they're struggling with depression whatever yeah anybody's got a funny feeling yeah yep you got a bad gut feeling do it yeah exactly so the police did agree to do that and they arrived at jason's apartment about 11 o'clock that monday night jason did not answer the door and so they did enter the apartment and they found jason's body in his bed it appeared that jason gage who again was 29 appeared to have been bludgeoned to death with a tequila bottle Oh, Jesus. A shard of which was jammed into his throat. It was notable that the shard of glass in his throat was not necessary to complete his murder. The bludgeoning was, uh, he died from the bludgeoning. He did not die from the stab wound to his neck. Mm -hmm. His body had no defensive wounds on it at all. Oh, interesting. Yes. So no evidence of a fight whatsoever. And the apartment had no signs of a struggle or a break-in, which tells us that he, by all appearances, was murdered by somebody that he knew and trusted at least enough to be in his home. Mm -hmm. So the last kind of detail of the scene that police noticed right away was that there were two empty glasses on the coffee table in front of the TV. Which also suggested that whoever it was, they were hanging out for a bit, like long enough to have a drink, hang out. The TV was still on to watch TV. So it wasn't like a quick, didn't look like it was a quick visit. Mm -hmm. Right. So the big question is who was with Jason that weekend before? So the police had to basically just retrace his steps on the last day that he was seen, which was March 11. So... This is where things start to happen really, really quick and why I kind of warned you that this like it just goes goes pretty (laughs) fast. So but it's also a testament to Jason's kind of wide net of a social circle. I think that this was able to be open and shut really fast. So questioning of his friends and confidants revealed that he had arrived at Kings and Queens that bar I was talking about kind of on that main strip. Mm-hmm. And he appeared to meet up with a man who his friends identified as 23-year-old Joseph Michael Lawrence. Okay. He is not Joseph Lawrence of the Lawrence brothers. He is a different Joseph Lawrence. I still don't know any of these people. Seriously? Where were you in the 90s? Suffering from social rejection. <laughs> <laughs> who were you crushing after in the 90s if not a Lawrence brother? Oh, wait, 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 from, uh, 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 the Boy Meets World? So the middle guy, um, was on Boy Meets World, the one that I had a crush on. Joey Lawrence was the one on Blossom. Oh. He's, he's the guy that goes, whoa. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. If you had said, like, the guy from Blossom. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay. So just to, uh, clarify that it's not that Joey Lawrence. This is a different Joseph Lawrence. This okay. one's a scumbag. So, good to know. Yeah. So the two of them hung out at Kings and Queens for a while. They actually closed out the bar, and then uh, they headed to another bar called The Times for an after-hours party that was being held there. So the next step, of course, is to find Joseph Lawrence. Now, luckily, like I said, with Jason's social circle, it was not that hard. The circle is pretty tight, and I think everybody kind of knew who Jason was. So... Um, it was kind of easy to identify him and kind of figure out like who he was with. So he sounds like somebody who kind of announces himself. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it was quickly figured out that Lawrence uh, lived with his girlfriend, whose name is Elizabeth Hostetler, and they had a toddler at the time. 
Now, it becomes like kind of nebulous to me okay. if he was still, if they were still together together, like if he was still living with them, but it's kind of neither here nor or there, you know, um, but it was just kind of hard to, hard to tell. Hard to suss out. Yeah. Yeah. So they lived in Cedar Falls, which is right next to Waterloo. And they had moved there in 2003 when she was pregnant. They lived in New Mexico before, but Elizabeth had a lot of friends in Waterloo. And so when she was pregnant, she wanted to move to be closer to her friends because she thought that they could be helpful. Okay. So it did not take long, of course, to start talking to Elizabeth. And she had a lot to say, which I thought was really interesting. Like it didn't seem like anybody had to work very hard to get information out of her at all. She very quickly told police that he called the apartment and spoke to their roommate saying that night of the 11th, saying that he needed a ride home from downtown because he, quote, didn't like the hospitality of the place. And without a ride, he was going to, quote, end up in jail. Interesting story. Yeah, right? So it's kind of like unclear looking at that if. Lawrence was referring to like the general environment of downtown, mm-hmm. like the time spa or just like kind of the scene down there, or if he was talking about Jason in particular. Yeah. My sense is that based on some of the text messages that follow that I'll start to read in a minute here, I think that it was more about the downtown atmosphere or the time spa because while Lawrence was going to be waiting for his ride, Jason had offered to let him wait it out at Jason's apartment. And he went willfully to Jason's apartment. Now, did he know? Did Jason and Joseph know each other beforehand? or They actually did. This is the the funky part. So Joseph Lawrence had been introduced to Jason Gage about two weeks prior to the night out by Elizabeth. So, okay, because in my head that played out two different ways. Yeah, yeah. Like one that Joseph reads that as like, this is a come on that's making me even more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Or, okay, this is a guy that I know that really is just like offering. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they had known each other for about two weeks at that point. This was not the first okay. time they had met each other. Like, obviously, it was a new friendship. From what I could suss out, it was the first time that they had hung out like in isolation of Elizabeth from what I could tell. And again, this was about two weeks into their like friendship or whatever you would call it at this point. Yeah. But because Jason had offered to let him stay at his apartment while he waited for his ride makes me think like, okay, he didn't. And Lawrence accepted. um, That means one of two things that Lawrence went to that apartment with the intention of hurting Jason or Mm -hmm. that something else was going on and just needed to get out of that environment a little bit whether somebody was yeah. like antagonizing him or he just didn't like the vibe or whatever okay yeah yeah so unfortunately it was in the hours that followed that jason was beaten to death okay in the early morning hours of march 12th joseph lawrence began his little texting spree we love reading text messages here on Midwretched. we love a text exchange we do we do these ones are So Joseph Lawrence had, he didn't really seem from what I could tell to have friends of his own in Waterloo. He was, you know, he was living in New Mexico. He had had kind of like a, a pretty transient childhood. You know, he lived in New Mexico. 
He was born in Delaware. He lived in Maryland, New Jersey, Ohio, foster homes, in and out of places for a long time. So he was not established in Waterloo, but the girlfriend was. Okay. So when he starts texting friends, he's texting his friends in New Mexico. Hmm. So the first text he sent was to a friend of his named Megan Baker. And the text read, I just killed a guy, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the middle of the night. Megan Baker doesn't answer right away. So he texts another friend, uh, this guy, Michael Bailey. The text that he sent was not as direct as what he sent to Megan. He said to Michael first, you need to call me soon. And then right away, I need help from you. So just like two rapid fire texts. Mm -hmm. So Bailey, like... His account ended up being really crucial to police because he woke up and called Lawrence as soon as he saw the phone. And according to Bailey, described that Jason had been hitting on him, quote, real bad. So he beat him over the head with a bottle. That's the story that Lawrence told Michael Bailey. Mm -hmm. Bailey kind of couched that by saying that Lawrence would have to have been really provoked to attack somebody like that in that way. Um, question i mean we'll probably get into it but does lawrence have any history of violence or aggression i was just about to get into it before i started talking about the megan baker text well okay yeah i like your timing let's do this so here's a bit of lawrence's history now not a lot is known before they got to iowa he was living in new mexico and worked on oil rigs and uh, while in new mexico he had a, a short criminal record. He pled guilty in 2003 to possession of marijuana and spent 30 days in jail there in New Mexico. So he had a little bit of a record, you know, nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. But his life prior to that, I kind of am curious if he has a juvenile record, which of course we have no access to. But he was born in Delaware and he was removed from his birth parents' care because of severe abuse. And he was in and out of foster care before he was five. So by the age of five, he was adopted by a family and he had a long history kind of in his like juvenile life of mental illness. And he did spend time in some group homes and with some hospitalizations. Yeah. The only like official diagnosis I could find for him was intermittent rage disorder. And he had received treatment for that in the past guarantee you there's something more there (laughs) oh yeah like no doubt right um but i have to assume his adoptive family was probably doing the best they could getting him diagnoses like that i don't know what year are we at we're in 20 2005 yeah i mean when he's a kid this is when he's a kid yeah so he was 23 and 05 so he was a kid in the 90s Um, okay yeah so this is probably before like the wave of good trauma-informed treatment mm, yeah probably so Yeah. yeah So, um, you know, that family that he was with, that his adoptive family, uh, moved around quite a bit, Maryland, New Jersey, and then Ohio. When they were in Ohio, he decided, I thought this was really interesting, um, that he no longer wanted to be adopted and moved back into foster care at age 16. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why there's not an official record of abuse, but, you know, you have to wonder what was going on there. Yeah, but also here in that history, I'm also going in my head and being like reactive attachment disorder, mm-hmm. attachment problems. Yes, and yes. And those are really hard to ever bond with as parents. And yeah. 
you know, who knows what that household looked like. Because it could have been trauma. It could have been more abuse. It could have been. Mm-hmm. Who knows? It's all just speculation. Yeah. But. Gosh, reactive attachment disorder is so interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's so interesting. Wikipedia that, people, if you're curious. So like I said, he decided he didn't want to be adopted anymore, and he moved back to foster care. And that's when he kind of made his way out west. He was in Arizona for a while, and then New Mexico. And that gets us to kind of where we catch up with him in 03 with Elizabeth Hostetler. Okay, so he really is just kind of a traveler. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't have roots anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So these New Mexico friends are kind of like the best he's got, you know, as far as like a lifeline, something to talk to, aside from Elizabeth. So... So it sounds like we know that there's a history of kind of wandering and mm-hmm. moving around, but I'm still not hearing any history of like a violence or intermittent rage disorder diagnoses in childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean he didn't get into like a fist fight at school, you know, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Like we're exactly. not going to see that kind of thing on like an official docket, you know. Um, But yeah, nothing, not enough as an adult to get him like locked up for an assault or anything like that that we are aware of. So, um, yeah. So that kind of takes us back to his text messages uh, with Megan Baker, that first friend that he tried. So she woke up and texted him back and said, you didn't kill anyone, did you? And then after some silence, she wrote again, so did you? Lawrence wrote back, hope not. Baker writes back, what happened? Lawrence responds, a fight turned real messy, got way out of hand. Baker says, are you hurt? And he says, I need to get back there fast, implying that he was trying to get back to New Mexico. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to flee pretty quickly, but you know who was faster than that? The police. The Waterloo police, that's right. So obviously the conversation with Elizabeth leading to some of these text messages and stuff like that um, was enough to arrest and charge Lawrence with Jason's murder. Literally within hours of them kind of finding him and uncovering the whole story. Okay. So uh, he did give a videotaped confession that was very similar to what he told Michael Bailey. But in the confession, I thought it was interesting, he was careful not to say that he killed him, but confessed to the attack. As in, okay. like, I didn't know he was going to die or, like, I didn't intend, you know. That yeah. that felt yeah. like kind of the omission to me. Now, what happened in court is where I get real geeky. Yes. yes. I love geekiness. I get so geeky about this. I love, I just love, I love court you stuff. You love courtroom drama. I do. I really do. So, um, Joseph Lawrence entered an Alfred plea. Mm-hmm. What do you know about Alfred pleas? So I was, I drove back to the homeland this weekend. Mm -hmm. And every time I go on a long car drive, I choose a long form podcast Mm. to listen to. So I have been listening to the Forgotten West Memphis 3. Oh, very good. So I am refreshing all of my information about Alfred, please. Mm. The case of the West Memphis 3, Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly and all of them. One of probably the most famous Alfred, please. Mm -hmm. Basically... You enter a plea of guilty while maintaining your innocence, essentially under the reasoning that if this were to go to court, then I would be found guilty, although I am not, Mm -hmm. but I'm doing this to get a lesser sentence. Yep. Usually it's taken in an appeal or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Typically. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful job. Nail on the head. So, um, (laughs) 
Yeah, so basically exactly like she said, Alfred, please allow the defendant to just state for the record that they are not guilty, that they are themselves innocent, but they are aware that the evidence exists that would likely cause them to be found guilty at trial. They feel very much like a miscarriage of justice in every in every interpretation of them. There's, it's so interesting. If you really want like a good deep dive into the Alfred plea and some of its other, like like another path to it, I would really recommend watching The Staircase on Netflix. Yes. Um, which is a phenomenal documentary anyway. Oh my God, so good. Oh my gosh, so good. Uh, and the plea, the, the path to the Alfred plea in that story is for me just fascinating. And I think like in that story... I don't know if I feel like it's a miscarriage of justice. Yeah. I think it's an interesting feature of our justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say that. Just this idea that like, and it's not allowed in every state. So Correct. two of our mid-wretched states, in fact, Indiana and Michigan, do not allow for Alfred pleas. Mm-hmm. Um, and neither does New Jersey. Everywhere else does. But you got three states that don't. So one of the other kind of like common misconceptions is – how is this different from a plea of no contest? Now, the Alfred plea forces you to admit that you would likely be found guilty and involves that yes. pleaing down, while a no contest plea is much more of like a concession of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, a no contest plea keeps the details off the record and also disallows any civil lawsuits related to the case. So an Alfred plea would allow space for civil lawsuits to happen related to mm-hmm. the case, while a no contest plea will not. Yeah. So because I'm a geek, I'm going to give you a brief history of the Alfred plea. You ready? Uh, I love this so much. Okay, good. So uh, Alfred pleas came into play as a result of a 1970 trial, which was North Carolina v. Alfred. Um, Mm -hmm. And this guy, Henry Alfred, was indicted on first-degree murder charges for a murder that took place in 1963. So um, for that case, witness testimony was the most compelling evidence. and it, it was North Carolina, and uh, they very much are a capital punishment state. So Alfred knew that he would be sentenced to death where he found guilty in the case. So he pled guilty to second-degree murder to avoid the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But at the time that he entered that plea of guilty to second-degree, he didn't want to do it. He did not mm-hmm. want to enter that plea. But nevertheless, he was sentenced on that charge. And then during the appeals process said uh, during the appeal process that he was forced to enter that guilty plea out of an intense fear of the death penalty, mm-hmm. not because he was actually admitting any wrongdoing. So it went all the way to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals, Fourth Circuit, and it was ruled that the plea was could not be considered voluntary, which is the condition of any plea deal. It has to be freely given. Yes. Because it was done under fear. It was done under duress. So the court ended up ruling that the defendant must be advised by a lawyer that his best interest is to plead guilty. And uh, another like important part of that is it must be considered a qualified lawyer. <laughs> so it can't just be like anybody, you know. Um, yes. So it has to be that the advice is to plead guilty by a lawyer because you will be found guilty at trial um, in order for the precedent to be set that the profession of innocence kind of allows for kind of both to exist. Right. Mm -hmm. So they have to admit on the record that they are aware of all evidence against them pointing to their guilt. So it's really important when you watch like an Alfred case go down in court, the documents they have to read and what a person has to agree to like line by line 
um, is basically like a contract with Mm -hmm. the state that says, yes, I understand that I appear to be extremely guilty, (laughs) you know, but I'm not admitting actual guilt. I'm, you know, I'm maintaining my innocence. It's interesting because, like, the first time I heard about it, I was relatively young because it was through uh, the West Memphis Three case. Mm-hmm. And they show, like, they really have to agree to every every charge, basically, yeah. against them. That, mm-hmm. yes, I'm guilty. I maintain my innocence, but, yes, I'm guilty in this very weird roundabout. Mm-hmm. And then when you are... So unlike when you're released, for example, they find you innocent or they reverse the charges or whatever that whole record it takes a long time it's a Mm -hmm. bitch of a process but it is eventually kind of reversed with an alfred plea all of those charges follow you everywhere Mm -hmm. but you basically the exchange for that is that you get to just be like done with it you know like you get to kind of swallow your medicine and just be done with it yeah now i think it's interesting like in a perfect world we wouldn't need and i say that with scare quotes we wouldn't need something like the alfred plea but Correct, yeah. it's not like people don't go to jail for stuff they don't do. Oh, God. I was just perusing the Innocence Project yeah. literally last night. And yeah. I was like, this is so crazy how many yeah. people go to jail for things they had nothing to do with. Yeah. I mean, for example, the staircase. I don't think that mm-hmm. Michael Peterson did it. I really don't. But the thing with him is like, man, it's spoilers. I'm sorry. So like, go ahead 20 seconds if you're mad at me. But um... <laughs> at this point, if anyone has... if. If a true crime fan hasn't watched The Staircase, I feel right. like. Yeah, like that's on you. <laughs> no. Okay, now go ahead another 20 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing with that is like in that case, he was getting old. He was really frail. Prison was really mm. hard on him. He was over 70. He wasn't going to make it through another trial. Like his health was not going to make it. Mm-hmm. So the only way for him to kind of live out his days was to do an Alfred plea. Yeah. Um, whether or not he was actually guilty of, of killing her. So... You know, in cases like that, it makes sense. In other cases, it seems like it's kind of exists to, like, preserve reputation in a way. Like, there's another case I thought about covering uh, with a football player who takes an Alfred plea. And I, I I couldn't find any reason for that other than, like, his image. Like, he didn't want to say – he wanted to maintain his innocence, like, you know, to the media or what have you. So I'll go back to Joseph Lawrence. The Alfred plea also uh, involves pleading down to a lesser charge, mm-hmm. typically. So um, Joseph Lawrence did plead down to murder, second-degree murder, rather than going to trial for first. Mm-hmm. This is where you're going to really, really hate this guy, okay? At his sentencing hearing, he is asked if he has anything to say. You'll notice along this way that, like, okay, he gave a taped confession, but he hasn't said anything else. He is not going to trial. We don't get to hear anything that he's got to say. Mm-hmm. So asked at that sentencing hearing if he had anything to say, he said, I have nothing appropriate to say. Oh. Yeah, like what does that even mean? There's a lot of ways I could interpret that. Yeah. Mr. Lawrence, please give me more. Yeah, exactly. But he wouldn't. He maintained his silence from there. And he's never said anything to this day. He was sentenced to 50 years as a result of the murder of Jason Gage. Now... His silence was not reflected in the rest of the community. There were a lot Mm -hmm. of feelings out there, a lot of outcry. One of the biggest kind of issues that came up for discussion was that people were really, really upset that this was not charged as a hate crime. Mm -hmm. 
because it felt to everybody like it really, really ought to be, right? I I agree. I'm trying to think if at this time, if the gay panic defense was still on the table. It well, which... here's the problem: whether or not, well, let's talk about the gay panic defense. Yeah. Do you want to rant for a second? Go ahead. Uh, the gay panic defense is actually still. I think it's still legal in many states Mm. that basically it was allowable to it was a it was a viable defense strategy to say I was afraid of this person because they were gay and I was afraid that they were going to attack me because they are gay. Mm. And for a long time, that was seen as a viable defense when committing a crime against a gay person. Mm -hmm. The trans panic defense is still very often utilized in court. Yes, it is. Now, the, the problem in this case that makes it really nebulous and why they... We're not able to, and, you know, police and prosecutors would say the same to the media, too, that in order for it to be tried as a hate crime, there had to be evidence that Jason was killed for the mere fact that he was gay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, which runs parallel to Lawrence's alleged motive of, you know, Jason Gage hitting on him and him, like, freaking out, but it's not a perfect fit. So, you know, Lawrence's motive... Lawrence wasn't going to give us any info, then... Right, Exactly. So, like, the thing that we know about Lawrence's motive is that he killed Jason because Jason made advances at him, not for existing as a gay man, which is what would have fit, you know, the hate crime charge at that point. I fucking hate that. Yeah, that, yeah, because, like, there's no, you know, there's no way to know what actually happened in that apartment, but it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. It feels like such a cop-out because it's, like, it can only be a hate crime if it was committed because he was gay, not mm-hmm. because he was gay and he was hitting on me. Exactly. It's I'm, so I'm gross. Mad. Yeah. Yeah. I just kept thinking, like, imagine what that law would look like if women were just out here killing men that hit on them. I would kill so many people. I would have, like, the trail of bodies that I would have behind me. Me and Val is fucking up there in the numbers. Insane. It would be insane. Like... If I were to attack every man that hit on me, I'd be killing a dude a week. Just, mm-hmm, they're out, you know? Oh, so, I'd have some fucking Andre Chicatello numbers. Dude. Yeah, exactly. So that is where, like, the injustice of it all really, really sticks in my craw. Like, mm-hmm. because this feels obviously, and it is obviously, something that was, like, allowable, quote-unquote, as a defense strategy or as, mm-hmm. like, an admission of motive for the fact that Jason was gay, right? Like, we don't know if Jason Gage hit on Joseph Lawrence. I doubt that he did. I don't know a lot of gay men that hit on men they know are straight. It's anecdotal, but... Fucking A, right? Yeah, I I find that most of my, um, you know, gay male friends are not attracted to straight men (laughs) because, you know, they're not, like... Because they're not. Yeah. Uh... But it's one of those things where, like, uh, I don't know. I'll probably cut this because it's going to come out dumb and not what I want it to sound like. But straight boys be so fucking fragile mm-hmm. that they think that, like, any gay man around them, any interaction, any any, any behavior is like, <gasps> are you hitting on me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, like, the hot take that you have to take on that is, like, 
men are so terrified of being treated like they treat women. Like that's yeah. what that boils down to. Yeah. So, and you can put that right back in there because that's the truth I will of it. fucking cut that right back in because yeah. it's true. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what that boils down to to me. And imagine if the shoe were on the other foot where we would be in this justice system. How many crimes like mm-hmm. this would have gone a different way? You know? God. Yeah. So uh, to add to the outrage on that, people were also really furious at what they thought to be underreporting of the crime, which I think was also really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read another op-ed. A reader named Jennifer Smith wrote to Courier and said, Jason Gage was murdered in what is most likely Iowa's first public hate crime, yet the Courier and other news outlets fail to cover it as one. It is so disappointing that you are discriminated against those who are gay. I guess I did not realize that you were a discriminatory agency. But your obvious ignorance of his terrible murder leaves no choice but to label you as a discriminatory news outlet. I am appalled and outraged. I know. Jennifer went out. I love her. Mm-hmm. I guess you're just scared that Jason Gage was gay? Why are you scared to print a story about the murder of a gay man because of his choice of lifestyle? As long as you include stories of taming your pet, though, you're okay, right? I assume they had, like, a little feature about a pet. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, your news agency is pathetic, and I'm sorry that I live in an area that receives your paper. Well, shit, Jennifer. Wow. I hope that she's evolved out of thinking that it's a lifestyle choice, but everything else, Jennifer. Yeah, I do too, but, yeah. you know. You know, it takes, it's 2005. It takes time. It's 2005. She's, it's 2005 in Iowa. Or, yeah. <laughs> that means it's like... <laughs> It's like 19. I was a high school senior in Ohio, so. Yeah, like, you know what it was like, I'm sure. Sadly, I do. Yeah. So one thing that I'm going to end on here, well, semi-end, because I think we're going to probably have a lot to say about this, too. On April 11th, 2005, which was not too long after, obviously, the murder and everything. So, you know, pretty quick. Several of Jason's friends and families planned this huge benefit in Jason's honor, and they were hoping to raise scholarship money for aspiring hairstylists. They wanted to create a scholarship uh-huh. in Jason's name. Yeah. So uh, they threw a party that was like in Jason's wheelhouse 100%. It was uh-huh. really a party to like just honor his, you know, his personality. There were glow sticks everywhere. There was karaoke. There were Elvis impersonators. It was a party. And I love this. Yeah. And it sounds like Jason would have loved it. And that is what I love the most about what they did here. Like, they threw a party that Jason, you know, would have wanted. I just love that they kind of honored him that way. Now, it was set to be a total blast, obviously, until, as alluded to in the opening of this story, members of the Westboro Baptist Church of Canvas, of Canvas, Kansas, 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 it wasn't just them that came up. Another organization called the Consuming Fire Campus Ministries, they came up all the way from Florida to protest the event. Do so, you people have nothing fucking better to do? Exactly. Like Kansas, you know, that's a drive that makes, you know, it's not that bad. You can do that in a day. Florida, like you have to plan for that, commit to that. You have to say, we're going to go out here and we're going to hate all over this event. And we're going like, to put several gonna- days into it. Yeah, we're going to put several days into being angry at people trying to mourn and celebrate a friend. Exactly. And to do something like positive and productive with their mourning by wanting it to, you know, help other people. Yeah, so fuck all of you guys. Yeah, so God forbid, right? So here's the other thing that really just like 
knocked me over. They obviously protested outside of the benefit itself, but they also sent smaller groups to protest outside of local churches that had in some way like memorialized Jason uh, or in general that were just more progressive. So they were outside of other churches like, you know, you're not a real church, you're not Christian, yada, yada, um, for basically like affirming Jason's memory. So much for loving all God's creatures and Mm -hmm. shit. Exactly. So um, they were obviously carrying signs just emblazoned with hate speech uh, I'm not going to give details on that. If you know about the Westboro Baptist Church, you know what those signs said. Mm-hmm. You know, protesters were shouting just ugliness at the friends and supporters that had come out. And, you know, it was drawing so much attention that, like, other just random locals that didn't know Jason or weren't related to the event started to show up to just, like, join the the counter-protest, basically, of Jason's friends and family. Um, against these people that had kind of invaded town to you know Mm -hmm. protest this event so yeah some of these community members shouted back with bible quotes that spoke of forgiveness one girl tried to hug one of the westboro baptist church members Mm -hmm. that person uh refused her hug and then another couple a gay couple shared a very passionate kiss in front of the pastor from consuming fire which i love yep when the protest permit expired at 10 p.m., obviously the hate-filled congregants had to, like, pile back into their nasty buses and go home. Um, yeah, go the fuck home. Yeah, and that allowed the party to just rage on as it should have in the first place. <laughs> so from what I can tell about Jason, the message of love and rising above just seems really kind of, you know, on brand with his spirit, but also at the mm-hmm. same time just not being afraid to just put a real solid fuck you into the faces of that kind of ugliness. Mm -hmm. I think those two things together, from everything I can tell about Jason, just feel kind of perfectly and beautifully on brand for who he was as a person and the life that he was trying to live too. I love that. I love the idea of turning a counter-protest into a party. It's very on brand for pride. Yeah, I love that too. I love that too. Mm -hmm. So that is the case of Jason Gage. So much of me wishes we had more information to talk about, mm-hmm. but even just from what you said about how underreported it was, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm glad you told it. It is beautiful story. I'm very angry right now, though. Yeah, me too. I mean, so it was interesting, too, about the letter that that Jennifer Smith had sent to the courier. They came back and said, you know, the first thing they said was that they they couldn't report it as a hate crime because the police were not treating it as a hate crime. They also said that when Jason's body was found, they put the story like A1 above the fold and that they had also covered the benefit. But when you look at that story that was A1 above the fold, it was about as small as a story can be, A1 above the fold. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't like lovely, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the, that's I guess what sticks in my craw is just that, you know, like it was underreported. It it was hard to find good information on. The fact that Joseph Lawrence took an Alfred plea also just means that a lot of stuff is not going to be in court records. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of an impediment to doing a lot of research as well. But, you know, I think had the victim been somebody else, there would be a lot more reporting on the crime. Yeah. Oh, I definitely think so. Yeah. Um, whether or not the courier knew that or did that purposefully or insidiously or just kind of like by inertia, you know, I don't want to make a value judgment there, but 
Inertia and ignoring the issue are just as much of a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I just really, you know, pride is this like wonderful, beautiful thing. And, you know, I think it's just really important to acknowledge the like beauty of everybody and just loving people for who they are and you know just acknowledging that like I said that worthiness and that beauty that lives in everybody and letting people be proud to be who they are and you know live out loud I want to make sure that like there's a space in that to think about people like Jason Gage too who I think would be if this hadn't have happened absolutely thriving at pride 2021 most definitely yeah I think so yeah, so just please keep a space in your heart for Jason Gage, you know, this month, wherever your pride activities may take you. Yeah, if they take him to the street, if you have them at home, if you just have them in your own little mind, because that's where you want to have your celebrations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if I forget to edit out some of the clicks in the background and you hear them, it's because I have been furiously clicking my fidget cube. This yeah, I noticed time. and I was like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I try to edit them all out, but uh, yeah. I yeah. I'm fidgety today. Sorry. Sorry. No, you got it's me okay. Angry. It's a fidget case. I get it. I, um, you know, I feel like I've had a lot of cases lately where I've been like, ah, I got to get this right. I got to get this right. You know, like there's, mm-hmm. you know, just a pressure to get it right when it's something that feels, they're all important, you know, mm-hmm. but where it feels like there's kind of a magnitude or a weight to it, you know, so yeah. I've been over here fidgeting. So, uh, tell us about next week. Uh, well, I suck at planning ahead, and I honestly didn't even realize we were in June. Yeah, we so. are. <laughs> Happy June. <laughs> Happy June. Um, so, I did not plan thematically, and I'm kind of sad about that now. Um, but I do have a very interesting case for y'all for next week. We're going to be traveling to Illinois. This is a case that was actually recommended by a listener a while ago and has been on my to-do list, even just outside of the recommendation for a long time. Um, we are traveling back to Illinois, and we are going to, going to be covering the Browns Chicken Massacre. Ooh, that's going to be interesting. A regionally famous case. But I don't know how much of it is known outside of the state of Illinois. Yeah, I don't know a ton, to be honest. I know yeah. that uh, I know that it's a restaurant. I traveled to Brown's Chicken to do some research. It was delicious. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so tune in next week. We're going to be covering the, I think, the second largest massacre in Illinois history after Richard Speck. Wow. Okay, that's going to mm-hmm. be really interesting yeah dang so come on back and i'll plan better after next week (laughs) it's all it's all hidden i mean you know we're focused in the midwest but stuff is hidden close to home these days today i was um i was an hour early for a doctor's appointment in laporte because i'm just like an anxious type a like mess you know Mm -hmm. um i was an hour early for a doctor's appointment that's actually tomorrow which is also really annoying but I was like, well, I'm going to, I got some time to kill. I guess I should just get a Starbucks and sit by Balgunas' killing fields and just like think for a little while. So um, that's kind of what I did. <laughs> just to sit and think in the killing fields. Yeah, just a little sit and think. It's interesting out there. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. to see how much of the land people just like are leaving as farmland, even though it's otherwise like a pretty developed town. Like I said, I traveled to the homeland this weekend, so I was, like, traveling through all of these, like, hills, and it's, like, 
farmland and then when i get closer to home it's like little foothills mm. and i'm like mm, this case happened here and then i drive a little further and i'm like this case happened. i know here. right like you just can't you can't stop yourself mm. and then you hit gary indiana and you're like oh every case happened here cases yeah 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 pretty much <laughs> so yeah keep coming back people we love you we appreciate you um, we got lots to talk about We'd love to see you on the socials, you know, in the meantime, between Thursdays. So at MidWretched, we're loving you guys. And we're really excited about our latest little boom. So welcome, new listeners. Uh, Really glad you're here. Yeah, we love you. Welcome. Stay engaged. Stay in touch. Like I said, like next week's case came from a listener suggestion. So send those on in. We love it. Keep on sending them in. Yeah. And we probably only have new listeners because our prior listeners are recommending us. So thanks to you guys as well. That's really like amazing and we really appreciate it. We love it. Send us feedback. Let us know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we should probably close out now. We love you. Happy pride. Mm -hmm. Um, Stay safe out there. We love you so, so much. Absolutely. Remember to be nice. And remember to eat cheese. And remember, like we've said 800 times, that we we love love you. We never do that when in sync. We should work on that. I like it better when it's not in sync, actually. Okay. Yeah. I'm never in sync with anyone anyway. (laughs) Okay, bye, guys. (laughs) Bye, guys. canvas can you tell i'm a teacher like i verbal slip into canvas like my teacher friends out there understand me you're just like shaking your head Um, where are my pearson folks at